1: Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thank you for joining us. I just finished talking with Michael Roos about his new book, The Gaia Hypothesis, Science on a Pagan Planet, and this is hot off the presses with the University of Chicago Press and just came out very recently in 2013. The book itself is extraordinarily carefully laid out, very clearly argued, and very clearly structured. And it takes the form of an articulation of the emergence, the various kinds of historical and philosophical backgrounds, and the responses to an idea that's come to be known in broad terms as the Gaia hypothesis. Put very simply, this is an idea that in its most basic form takes the earth to be a kind of living organism. And of course, the different ways of Fleshing out that, for, that argument, the different ways of articulating and changing that argument are, make up some of the argument of the book, and it's a really fascinating story. The book itself is written in an extraordinarily vibrant, sparkling, very fun style, and it was not only super, super fun and interesting to talk with Michael about it, but it was also really, really fun to get through the book. This is a book that's a, a pleasure to read, it's very clear to read, and it's going to be not only uh, very widely readable, but also very widely assignable in classes and things that are uh, that deal with topics that are relevant to the history of ecology, the history of public science, the history of biology, and many other related topics. Sprinkled throughout the book are vignettes and accounts of some really fascinating characters, and so there are ele- there are individuals in this story that really come to life as part of the narrative in a wonderful way. So it was great fun to read, great fun to talk with Michael about the book, and I hope you enjoy the conversation and the book as much as I did. We're here today to talk with Michael Roos about his new book, The Gaia Hypothesis, Science on a Pagan Planet. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Michael, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today about this brand, brand, brand new book.
0: Well, my pleasure. Actually, I'm down in Florida, and believe it or not, Florida is the wettest part of the U.S., far more than Seattle, and we've got absolutely pouring rain today, so what better than to talk about myself and what I've been doing? (laughs)
1: Okay, great. So Michael, could you start us off as is traditional for our channel to say a little bit about your background. How did you come to the field of history and philosophy of science in general and a focus on the biological sciences in particular?
0: Well, as you can tell from my accent, I I was born in England and I grew up there and then Uh, In 1962, actually, September the 17th, 1962, I stepped off the boat, the Empress of England in Quebec City in pouring rain, and I became a landed immigrant. And I stayed in Canada until 2000. I taught at the University of Guelph for 35 years. And then I moved south to Florida, Florida State, in order to avoid compulsory retirement. And I'm seventy-three years old and still going strong. So um, I'm a philosopher by training, and I did an undergraduate, degree in philosophy, and then I did a PhD. I did a what Canadians call thesis, and what Americans I've discovered called a dissertation. Right. And I wrote. I decided to write, I I wanted to do science, and so I wrote on evolutionary biology, which wasn't much discussed in those days. And um, what happened then was I I wrote on the topic and around the topic, published my first book on this. But we're talking back 1970, and of course the big book of the day then was Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And Kuhn said if you want to do philosophy of science, you've got to know about the history of science. So uh, for my first sabbatical from Guelph, I went to Cambridge in England and tooled up as a historian. And I've been writing on Darwin ever since. I wrote a, a little book on the Darwinian Revolution. And then I've been writing a lot right down to this year when I brought out a big encyclopedia, uh, the, what, the, the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Darwin, and Evolutionary Thought. So I've been writing on evolution uh, and biology for a long, long time. I haven't written a great deal on geology or the earth sciences as such, but it's very hard, of course, to uh, write on evolutionary biology without talking about paleontology. When I say hard, I don't want not to do it. And so um, about three, four years ago, I was asked by the Chronicle of Higher Education to review some books on uh, the Gaia Hypothesis, which I did, and then an editor I know at the University of uh, Chicago Press asked me if I thought there was a book there, and my experience is that if an editor's interested in these things, then so am I. <laughs> And uh, as they say, you know, one thing led to another. And now here's the baby coming out uh, in September.
1: <laughs> That's great. Thank you. Now, you mentioned early on in the book um, that the aim of the book or one aim of the book is to show the ways that today's thinking about empirical questions, as you put it, is deeply influenced by the past. And this seems to really echo your initial comments about the importance of history and philosophy, history to the training of a philosopher. Of science. It's really striking in the book and really, I think, quite wonderful from the perspective of someone in the field of history of science to see work that's so deeply committed to bringing together what you know some uh, tend to find are two different disciplines, history of science and philosophy of science. And the book does this really beautifully. So can you start us off maybe by talking just a little bit about your approach to integrating the past into your story? How did you decide that this was a question? That you wanted to approach with this particular way of integrating your philosophical, uh, your philosophical background and skills with this particular way of te- of doing history.
0: Well, uh, as they say, I've, that's a good question, Carla. I'm glad you asked that question. When I, when, when I respond that way, it means I've got a good answer or, oh, bloody hell, give myself a minute just to think <laughs> of uh, you know, a response. But you're happy for the time being. Actually, I think I could probably uh, give you a pretty good idea of what was going on here. You see, I, I mean, like everybody, I knew about the Gaia hypothesis. I knew that the whole idea of Gaia was of the Earth as an organism. But to be perfectly candid, uh, I, I knew also that this was very much a flower children sort of idea. I mean, look, I'm old enough to remember the 60s and 70s, so I remember when Gaia came up and people were embracing it. And as I like to say, uncomfortable sandals and vegan diets. Um, and so I knew all about this, but I, quite frankly it wasn't my sort of thing. So I certainly didn't know any details about it. So when I was asked to review these books, I mean I, for once I did actually read them rather than just review them. And then of course when I was asked to do a um, you know, the the, the topic do, actually doing a book on the subject came up. I got serious, as it were, and started in on it. And so I spent, let's say, six months or so reading the literature, reading stuff by the main players, Jim Ludlock and Lynn Margulis, and some of the others. And then I got into the journal articles, and then I got into, you know, reading what is it, Mother Jones and the whole earth catalogue and this sort of thing. And basically, for the first six months, I kind of... Um, what shall I say? Immersed myself in it. Now, I don't like to read without writing because I always find that writing is a good way to start focusing my points. So, uh, and I, I lo- the other thing I like to do is write first drafts and then second drafts and go all the way through rather than try to get chapter one absolutely right because I always find that by the time I get to chapter 10, I don't want chapter one anyway. So, I, um, that's what I did. And I, God, I worked through a hell of a lot of tedious stuff. You know, (laughs) symposia from the 1980s, where Jim Lovelock said, I believe this. And others said, No, you don't. Or we don't. And Jim Lovelock said, Yes, I do. Oh, my God, I worked through a hell of a lot of that stuff. And it became clear. And I mean, I, I, you know, to be a bit of a show off, I'm a fairly sophisticated writer. And I know that if you're going to write a book, which is going to be interesting, you can't just as it were, <laughs> right from the beginning to the end, and just simply say, "Well, Canada was founded in, you know, 1867, and Sir John A. Macdonald was the first um, prime minister, and then we had this, and then we had that, and then we had the First World War, and so on." I mean, basically, I mean, if you were going to write a book, say about Canada, you'd want to have a certain theme, say about growing up or insecurities with respect to the states or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying one or the other, but the point is, <laughs> a history has to be has to be a story, has to have a, you know, I mean, it's like Dickens, make them laugh, make them cry, make them wait. If if it ain't a good story, then why are you bothering? So it became clear to me that just writing a book, as it were saying, well, Gaia came up in the 1960s, which it did when a man called Jim Lovelock, who was a British scientist, had this vision The Earth as an Organism. And then in 1970, he sort of, you know, joined forces with this woman, Lynn Margulis, who was an American uh, biologist, and they wrote some papers and then Jim wrote a book and then people criticized him. It became clear that this wasn't, you know, I mean, this was a chronology. But this wasn't a book. And so I, I was basically looking for a hook on which I could hang things. And of course, the other thing is you want to write your own book. You don't want to write a book that other people have written. I mean, I, one of the books I'd reviewed for the Chronicle in the first place was by a couple of science writers who said, oh, well, this has all been leading up to the uh, Green not the Green Revolution, to global warming and Gaia is, is, as it were, a lead up and we need Gaia to understand that. Well, frankly, that just struck me as just, uh, let me put it this way, not well taken, in other words, BS. Um, so I, that wasn't going to be my thing. But then, as it were, it was almost, it hit me. That what I was looking at was something really quite incredible and uh, very revealing. Namely, I was getting these, uh, or I was getting, Gaia was getting, these completely different responses. The scientific community, almost to a person, absolutely loathed and hated it. Now, you know, Richard Dawkins is good at loathing and hating everything, (laughs) starting with me, you know, and and going on down or up. Uh, So, you know, you can't just take the fact that Richard Dawkins. Hawkins doesn't like it as a sort of, what shall I say, a significant indicator. This is an important point. But the thing was, I was finding that real scientists like John Maynard Smith and uh, Ford Doolittle, who's, uh, you know, the the very good bi- uh, biologist over at Dalhousie. I mean, they were, you know, they absolutely, they didn't just dislike I mean, it's one thing to say, well, I'm really not very fond of, what shall I say, you know, fiddleheads or something, you know, to talk something Canadian, but what shall we say, you know, but they, you know... (laughs) like people in Vancouver or people in Calgary feel about Toronto they really, really hated it, they, you know, it was visceral, I mean they really, it wasn't just they didn't love, they really loathed it, so uh, uh, it's okay Carla nobody hates Vancouver, you know we all love British Columbia <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it was, that was the one side and then of course, on the other hand I had all these people who were absolutely going nuts about Gaia. There was, you know, there were Gaia festivals, there were Gaia church services, there's Gaia hubs, there's the Gaia Atlas, there's uh, the Gaia spa, you know, for rubbed up. There's even a, a Gaia network for people, you know, for sensitive people or something like that. And I was thinking to myself, you no, know, this is this is remarkable. Why is it that the scientific community absolutely loathed this idea? I mean, as I say, didn't just dislike it, but absolutely, you know, really hated it, and the the. Um, the general public loved it. Now, one other factor, which was as it were, and I'll shut up and you can ask another question. <laughs> another, one other factor was that Gaia was being promoted by these two people, Jim Lovelock, James Lovelock, and Lynn Margulis. Now, there's in the sociology of science, there's something which is known as the Matthew principle, to him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not shall be taken away. In other words, what this basically says, if an important scientist has an idea Idea, you take it seriously, and if a grad student, let us say, not from University of British Columbia, let's say a grad student from Simon Fraser has an idea, he's, you laugh and say, "Well, you now move on if you don't mind." Um, but the, the point God, I'm going to be very popular, Simon Fraser, <laughs> <aren't I? laughs> but anyhow, the thing is, Lovelock had just got into the Royal Society. I mean, not the Royal Society of Canada. I'm in that. Any you know any pro can get into that. I'm talking about the real one in England. Lynn Margulis was on her way, and she, you know she used to be married to to Carl Sagan. Right. He never got into the National Academy of Science, but she did. She did. So here you've got these absolutely top level scientists, and yet everybody is you know peeing all over them. So here was you know I suddenly said you know I've got a real hook here, and the nice thing is I said. This is important for me because I've got a suspicion, and I think it panned out, that this is going to tell me something about science and and the public. It's not going to be all about Gaia. It's not... I mean, it's it, it's going to be, as it were, a mirror or a lens or whatever the metaphor you want to use, uh, to get into the nature of science and science in the general public and those sorts of things. So and that, that you know, you can tell I'm excited because that's exactly what happens. So as I say at the beginning of my book, this is a book on Gaia, but it's not really about Gaia. Uh, I want to show you know more about it. Well. <laughs> As you heard, I'm a philosopher, I'm, I'm a historian. So I'm not a scientist, I'm not a journalist, I'm, a, I'm not a sociologist. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not any of these things. Uh, but I am a historian and philosopher, and so that's what I'm going to bring to bear to it. And uh, that's what I did. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're, you're listening to a guy who's very excited. <laughs>
1: no, no, this is great. <laughs> no, I love this. And the book, I think also, uh, just to, to mention for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it, that kind of ebullience and real joy for the topic really does come through in the narrative and in the writing style, but also in the way that you've structured the story. And so it's really a pleasure um, to... to bring that to life, um, orally and to hear you talk about it as well. This, this sense really comes through in the text also.
0: Well, you know, I'm glad about that because a couple of people say that, you know, and I'll tell you something, if you want boring, I mean, if you want double plus boring, try analytic philosophy in the average philosophy department in North America today. My God, it's dull. And I, The one thing I really take pride in is being able to tell a good story. And I really feel that I've done it this time. And, you know, it's not a a question, is it true? Is is it fun to read?
1: (laughs) And I think also, so there are many, many really interesting things about not just your approach in the book, but about the story itself. And one of the really interesting things as we kind of work our way into the introduction and the beginning of the book is the kind of sources that you marshaled to tell this story and you talked a little bit about that sort of going through um, documentary archives um, yeah. going through oral histories in addition to that the research cool. I'm sorry the research for the book just to kind of lay this out briefly for listeners and then I'll and then I'll um, open it and let you go to town on it but the research for the book includes also interviews with some of its main figures including Lynn Margulis James Lovelock two of Lovelock's um, students uh, Andrew Watson and Timothy Lenton and also a figure who who I am sure we are going to talk about later, Oberon Zell Ravenheart, who is who stands out. I mean, you, you, he absolutely stands out in the story. So, um, because this seems to be, it, it's such a, it seems to be such an important part of the process that went into the storytelling for you, and it's really notable and it's really interesting to read about. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about your experience doing these interviews, and in, in whatever way you wanted. You know you want to approach yep. this so do any right do any moments stand out as particularly notable <laughs> for you did this trans did, did those interviews at all transform the kind of narrative you decided to tell in the book um
0: Right. Well, yes. Well, that's, again, another terrific question. You see, if you're doing, say, a standard history of science book, and I've done them, then, you know, if you want to go beyond the printed material, you go to the unpublished stuff. And in the old days, you went to the archives. Of course, these days, so much of it is up on the net. You don't need to do that kind of traveling anymore. But well, I you know, did my work on Darwin. I spent a lot of time at the University Library in Cambridge going through Darwin's papers. Then I got to London to, to the Royal Society to look at stuff. I went to the, what is now the British Library to look at some of Alfred Russell Wallace's letters and that sort of thing. All The stuff's all there. Now, I, I wanted to do some of that um, in this book, but at the same time, I realized I was dealing with living figures. And one of the things which I wanted to step carefully around was I didn't want to get too close emotionally as it were to the, my main figures. I wanted to be as empathetic as it was possible to be. I, I really wanted to get under their skins but I, at, at a certain level I didn't want to become their friend and I'll tell you one of the books I actually reviewed I felt that that was a problem they ran into that they'd become so close to Lovelock and his wife that I felt that they'd lost a level of objectivity. And so the point is, I had to be in a position to say what I wanted to say about these people rather than what they wanted me to say about these people. So uh, I I wanted to interview these people. I wanted to look at stuff that they'd written and, and a lot of stuff like that, and I did. But at the same time, I didn't want to spend an awful lot of time going through their private papers, staying with them and that sort of thing because then I felt that obviously my relationship with them would change and if there were things I wanted to say which were critical, it can be very difficult to to do so. As it happened, I found the more work I did on these things, the more at a certain level I grew to respect these people. Like, You know, I didn't necessarily agree with them, but I really felt, you know, these are men a mention I know you 're not allowed to call anybody a man anymore, but you know what I mean. I mean, I really felt these were men of both men of both sexes, if you know what i mean, and i i really I must say. Uh, all of the people I, I found myself dealing with, I really drew a great deal of, of respect for them, even at times when I felt that they were absolutely star raving bonkers. Um, now, I'm not sure that, well, I don't know how to say that anybody was actually star raving bonkers, but uh, you're right. I mean, the people I interviewed were obviously the two main principals, uh, Jim Lovelock and Lynn Margulis, because they were the people who pushed the gar hypothesis in the first place, and it made a lot of sense to go and interview a couple of gym students a couple of people in England that he'd worked with so I did this and then I I needed to talk to people who were as it were on the other side and one of the as you already mentioned one of the people as it were in the general public who had made one of the biggest uh, sort of vocal and uh, internet uh, commitments to Gaia was this man he started life as Tim Zell, but he's now morphed into Oberon Zell Ravenhart, who is a you know, a full fledged wizard, come pagan, come whatever you like, and guess where he lives? No, it's not British Columbia. it's second best, it, it's California. Ah. And uh, and so I went out to interview him and his wife, Morning Glory. And she Morning Glory is, is not well named because she has trouble getting up in the morning. She's a bit like she's a bit like my daughter who majored in afternoon studies. Um but anyhow, uh, I went – and, of course, they're my age. Well, they're not just about my age now. You know, they're late 60s, probably even early 70s. And, you know, they're like a couple of little old retired Unitarians, actually. I mean, uh, But I, what I realized was that although these people – I say although these people are pagans, although these people have some really nutty ideas about drawing down the moon and that sort of thing – I realize that these are just deeply religious people, and at a certain level they 're no different than the Archbishop of Canterbury, who I think also believes some very strange things about people rising from the dead and that sort of thing so you know that 's what I mean by respect it, i don 't i don 't agree with them, but at a certain level, I respected these people. And, after all, when it came down to it, they're concerned about Mother Earth. They're concerned about the, you know, the place where we live. And hell, give me somebody who's a pagan who cares about the earth that we live on against somebody who wants to drop, you know, bombs on little yellow men any day of the week. So you know, as I say, I don't necessarily agree with these people, but. I really did like a, <laughs> right.
1: and that empathy that that empathetic approach really does come out in the text of the book and that 's another thing that I think is so striking about the narrative and it 's one of the things that I think is going to make this a very good book to teach with as well um, that there 's a way that While not losing sight of the narrative of the, you know, the the really important distinctions on some level, and this is one of the themes that we'll talk about and one of the themes um, that runs through the book, the distinctions between the kinds of how to talk to and talk about the kinds of communities that constitute both professional scientists and then publics of various sorts, right? While not losing sight of those important differences, the book does really place them at the same level in terms of sympathetic characters. Um, And that's, I think, a really hard thing to do, especially for someone who works in the history of philosophy of science. And it's one of the things that I think translates really well and will translate really well to not just readers, but also to students in a classroom. So that was a really fun part of the book for me as well. So as we move into the chapters of the book, you've already talked a little bit about two of the, or really the two main characters, um, James Lovelock and Lynn Margulis. So the opening of the book sets out the moment in which Lovelock was actually inspired to come up with what ultimately winds up constituting at least this early part of the Gaia Hypothesis. So you describe him in, uh, what is it, while well, he was in California working for NASA doing research on the atmospheric composition of Mars, being really struck by an image, and it's this is an image of the Earth as a living organism able to regulate its temperature and chemistry. So you've talked a little bit about him and um, his approach. One of the things that's really striking in this early part of the book, though, and this comes up again later, is that one of the sort of motivating factors or contributions to the way he winds up thinking about not just Gaia, but also his approach to the issues, the topic, is a friendship with someone who may strike readers and listeners as a surprising um, person in this story and this is the author of Lord of the Flies William William Golding so can you talk a little bit about Lovelock, what do we need to know about him to understand what's happening in this early part of the book and where does his friendship with Golding come into the story?
0: Right, right Um, well let me just simply say that one of the things and I mean I'd like to think there are many themes which are going through this book but one of the things that is very important to me in this book is the 1960s and the contradiction of different things going on there. It's the time of the flower children, time of the beetles, it's the time of liberation through the pill, and all of these sorts of things. It is the time when everybody was reading Lord of the Rings, uh, not Lord of the Flies, rather, uh, and this sort of thing. At the same time, it's the, it's the decade when you get these three horrendous uh, assassinations, the two Kennedys and Martin Luther King. It's the time when Lyndon Johnson gets even more embroiled in Vietnam. And then, of course, Richard Nixon is elected president. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book actually is play with this almost Hegelian contradiction of super science on the one hand. And Lovelock was very much into that. I mean, he was working for the space agency, for goodness sake. And yet, on the other hand, this whole business of the you know, the flower children and that sort of thing, and as I say, Lord of the Flies. And when Lovelock goes back to England, who's the one person that he's really close to is, is William Golding, the novelist. And um, let's not spoil the, the, the surprise because, boy, did I ever find some unbelievable things before I would finished this book and let's leave that you know as I say and let's use the Dickens make him laugh make him cry make him wait because it turned out I you know, I'd, I'd written all about Golding at the beginning and how Golding he but I hadn't realized until late on in, in writing this damn book just exactly how explosive this was going to be. And, I'm, I, you know, I am very proud of, of, of all of this. Anyhow, so do understand, then, that what I'm I'm starting with, then, is this, as I say, almost Hegelian uh, contradiction of his Lovelock, who's a man who's working for the space agency and yet comes up with this idea, which, you know, his fellow scientists think is flaky. And yet the flower children love. He brings in Lynn Margulis, who... Is, you know, I mean, admittedly, she'd been at, at Berkeley, but when she was at Berkeley, she was raising two small kids because Carl Sagan wasn't helping very much at the time. And so here's a woman who's working in, you know, in molecular biology, working at the level of the cell. And yet suddenly they come up with this idea, which is, you know, so 1960s in its way. And so at least part of what I'm trying to deal with is this, as I say, is the 1960s and the recognition that the 1960s themselves were such a conflicted decade of, uh, of two sides not always getting on. And, of course, this is, you know, a, a, a vital, as a, what should we say, a, an under theme of the book all the way. Right.
1: So we've talked a little bit about Lynn Margulis, and listeners or readers may be most familiar with her as the founder of what's um, known as endosymbiotic theory. So we think of Lynn Margulis, we think of endosymbiosis, uh, at least for people who, don't, who aren't experts in this field and, and in this history. Now, they meet, um, things start ramping up, or they start collaborating, rather, and we get to an explanation of, and their initial, at least, articulation of what the Gaia hypothesis is. And one of the really interesting things at this part of the story is you're showing early in the book that the way um, certainly Lovelock um, is defining and articulating what the Gaia hypothesis is really changes somewhat or differs somewhat depending on the kind of audience he's aiming for. And so this is a way to start thinking about a more general claim, and I think a way for um, readers to use this example to think more broadly about, more generally, the impact of and the importance of modes of communication in the sciences. And this seems to be a a point at which that really plays a role. So could you talk a little bit about, in the case of um, Lovelock and Margulis, how did the nature, if at all, of what they were claiming about Gaia change early on in this process, depending on the audience they were aiming for? How much of an impact did this have in this early history?
0: Well, I think that, I mean, there's two questions there. One is, how did they change as they moved, particularly Lovelock, as he moved from trying to talk to his fellow scientists to trying to talk uh, to the general public? And we see this in the 1970s, as Lovelock basically, you know, for a while anyhow, more or less gives up on his fellow scientists and starts writing at a popular level. But the other thing, and I I think that this was something which again, took it wasn't, I didn't get it immediately, it took some time for it to get through my skull, was the, the realization that Lovelock is not a biologist. I mean, he spent an awful lot of time in, uh, during the Second World War and afterwards dealing with things like the common flu and that, uh, influenza and that sort of thing. But he's, uh, he's not a biologist. He's, he's a chemist. And so, of course, when he's approaching problems, he's got his, what should we say, paradigms, if you like. And if when Richard Dawkins or uh, John Maynard Smith approach a problem, they've got theirs. For Dawkins and John Maynard Smith, natural selection is all important. And if you're talking about organisms, you can't talk about organisms except in terms of natural selection. For Jim Lovelock, when he's talking about things, he's talking about things getting into balance and that sort of thing. Homeostasis. So he's defining organisms in terms of homeostasis. They're defining organisms in terms of natural selection Jim's saying the earth is in homeostasis the biologists are saying natural selection didn't produce the earth and so Jim's saying yes it is an organism they're saying no it isn't and at least a part of it is, is talking past each other but not just that because and this is really really interesting. Uh, you know you as you know when you're doing a book first of all you do, the, you, you, do you do all the copy editing and then you get the proofs. And just before I was about to send off... uh the material, I, I think, actually it was the actual proofs. I was just about to send them off, and if, if you're like me, the night before you send them off, you start to panic and say, "Oh, oh, crikey! Have I got everything wrong? I'm, where is that crucial paper I started with? Let me reread it and make sure you know I, I didn't miss negatives in front of all the main va- verbs or something." So I did this the night before I was sending this stuff off, and I got it all right. I got it all right, and then. I looked at their picture and I said, Oh my god, this picture that they got in this journal was the crappiest picture I have ever seen. It was so small and so squashed, I mean I would hold it up to the light before I could actually read, you know, the legend. And I said, Oh my god, They've got this picture of homeostasis right there. I missed it. In fact, I so far missed it. I went to Jim's book, which he published with Oxford, where he had a completely different diagram. And I spent a hell of a lot of time and a pile of money, too, on getting permission to reproduce that. And the night before I sent it off, I said, I don't need this. I want the original one. I went, no kidding, at at five in the morning, I got up to phone Holland, who'd got the, you know, (laughs) by eight o'clock, I'd got permission mission to use it by nine o'clock i had my illustrator busy redrawing it and at 10 o'clock we were off to fedex with a new picture which showed that you know jim may have got the story wrong but by god he would found something which you know scientists should take very seriously the earth the sun is heating up the earth was not heating up what the hell is going on here now you know jim may have been wrong about it being an organism i mean i've we can argue that one. But the biologists should have, you know, had at least, what shall I say? the modesty, the gumption, the whatever to pull back and say, you know he's absolutely wrong about his explanation, but you know, the guy's got something we need to explain. Now, you know it isn't just as easy as we think but of course, by that time, and I, I think there were reasons for this, which again make him cry, make him laugh make him laugh, make him cry, make them wait, we'll get to that but I mean, the thing is they were so wrapped up in what they were doing, they missed this and I think you know, now I can show that, that Jim had got a point, I'm I mean, I don't think – I'm not saying – I don't think that means the Earth is an organism, but he'd sure got something worth explaining. Why did the Earth stay balanced with respect to temperature when the sun was heating up? what. You can extrapolate is that the earth should have gotten a hell of a lot colder, you know, three billion years ago. And it should be, have been heating up ever since until now. And it, should, and it is getting hotter, of course, but it didn't do that. It stayed more or less constant. And I think Jim and, and Lynn had a point there and people should have spotted that. Great.
1: Now, as we move um, into the book, and this is actually also, I'm, I'm glad you it's really interesting to hear about this moment in your own thinking being stimulated by looking at an image, because, again, this is another point at which um, this. there's so much happening in the book that speaks to more general issues of interest to people who may not imagine themselves fundamentally interested in the history of the Gaia hypothesis or evolution but who are interested more generally in this as a way to model how to think about images as narrative um, and these sort of very, very important fundamental questions that the book is dealing with implicitly or explicitly at the same time that we're looking at this really fascinating narrative of this particular scientific hypothesis. Now as we move into further into the book, you set out the diff- very different kinds of reactions had, and, and you've talked a little bit about this already, so I won't ask you too much about it, uh, by biologists on the one hand, and you've mentioned Richard Dawkins a little bit. I also have to give a shout out because another uh, figure that comes up in that part of the book is Stephen Jay Gould, and um, Steve was my undergraduate thesis advisor. So that was oh, super fun. Yeah. Oh, oh, you, <laughs> you went
0: fun. to Harvard, didn't I you? Did. You didn't go to, I... you
1: didn't go to Simon Guilty. Fraser, did you? No, I, there
0: no. we are. Aha. Uh-huh. I wondered about that Element of arrogance. You <laughs> sound very Canadian to me,
1: you know. <laughs> oh, I'm very American. <laughs> but so, so there's a lot of uh, really interesting vignettes in that part of the book too that look at specific examples of the kinds of rather um, not just skeptical, but rather uh, attacking kind of re- reactions from biologists. On the other hand, the public reaction is one of enthusiasm, and so with the rest of the book does after setting this up is really looking at and lay, looking at the question and laying out an argument for exploring why the scientific community was so indifferent and then really hostile to this idea that Lovelock and Margulis has. And it turns out that the way to understand that question is to look back at the past, is to look back at the history of and really the foundation of what had to happen in order for in order to lead up to the kinds of circumstances social, cultural, political, psychological you name it, in which um, scientists found themselves when they were responding, and different communities of scientists in different ways responding to the work, so you take us through in chapter three a really helpful, kind of deep history of ideas of the earth as sold and ideas of world's uh, soul thinking, from Plato's Timaeus, all the way through the scientific revolution and the importance of a machine metaphor, and then to German idealism with Schelling and uh, this idea of the self-organization of nature. And what we see in this early part of the book is the emergence of kinds of themes that are going to continue to play out in different ways, and not at all in a straightforwardly progressive narrative, and, and you're very clear about that. But that the seeds are laying here that are going to get dispersed and flower in interesting ways throughout the rest of the book. So one of the most important seeds here that um, we need to understand to understand what happens is what you call mechanism, the idea of mechanism. So in chapter four, you're showing how in the debate over Gaia, people are actually coming to the table with really different world concepts and philosophies of nature. And in the geological sciences and the biological sciences, one of the most important elements of thinking about nature was this idea of mechanism. And so could you talk a little bit about um, this part of the story? What do you mean by mechanism and how is this play a really important part in this, part, in this historical context that we need to understand to understand what happens in reaction to Lovelock and Margulis's ideas?
0: Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, you know, g- going back to your teacher, Steve Gould, I mean, it, he, it's very interesting. I mean, he obviously, I mean, he was knew about everything and he knew about Garth. It was sort of interesting. It really wasn't his fight in a way that I think it was Dawkins's fight. Mm-hmm. But it's very interesting that he was very much like Dawkins, sort of giving it, you know, he basically gave it the back of his hand and sort of blew it off. And as I say in in the book i think it's very interesting that he did this because S- uh, steve was incredibly sensitive to metaphor and this sort of thing which of course the guy hypothesis is and so i thought it was particularly interesting so it's almost you know what should we say a, a, not the main theme of the book but you know, a little bit at the end why why was steve giving it the back of his hand too anyhow so to to go to as you say to pick up the story i mean basically what i say is first of all, the guy hypothesis did not start with Jim Lovelock in 1965. I mean, the, the idea the idea goes back to Plato, or even before Plato, and it's got a, a venerable history. And I say, one of the interesting things is that you, you get the scientific revolution in the 16th and 17th centuries, when you change from the idea of the world as an organism to the world as a machine. And yet, Nevertheless, there's always this sort of sort of minority position, which uh, continues to think in organic terms and thinks that the the earth is an organism. And it, you mentioned Schelling and, and I think it's particularly interesting. And again, you know, this is one of the great things about doing research is you do learn things. I mean, I I mean I knew who Schelling was, but I'd never bothered to I bothered. I mean, you know, Schelling wasn't my sort of philosopher. I'd never read him at all. And yet here he becomes suddenly incredibly important in my story, one of the absolute key figures. So I I end, as it were, the first part of the history, you're right, by saying, well, we lead up to Schelling, who is a full-blown believer in the earth as an organism. And then what I'm trying to do then is obviously with an eye to the present. I mean, I don't want to say the present is right and everything works up to the present, but uh, what I'm trying to do is use history to understand the present. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, what are, as it were, the main what should we call them, the methodological paradigms that we're going to be working with today? Well, obviously, one is the scientific revolution's paradigm of mechanism, the earth as a machine. One of the things I'm interested in then is, well, how does mechanism or how do did mechanists deal with the whole question of the earth and that sort of thing? So I look at people, as I say, like Hutton, in eighteenth 19- century Scotland, and then I look at Lyle I look at I, I, I look down to plate tectonics and show how plate tectonics is very much a mechanistic view of the world. The world is just a basic basically it 's a, a new common engine with you know the, the engine that they invented in the 18th century for pumping water, which goes round and round and round, and so I, I try to show how mechanistic thinking dominates. In geology. And then I move on to Darwin and the Darwinian revolution. And again I want to say that uh, Darwin is very much a mechanist in this sort of way, and that natural selection is this very much this sort of vision of, of biology which fits in with geology. So this is one vision that I've got and that, that as I come up to the present. But I want to say it's not the only one. And one of the things that again I'm really rather proud of is to say That I think that in respectable science, particularly at your alma mater at Harvard, and then going up at the beginning of the 20th century, then going over to Chicago, a little later, the University of Chicago, that you get this what I call holistic or organismic thinking, which is much more geared to a less of a reductionistic, let's blast it all to pieces and start with the molecules, and much more, let's look at And in fact, I do take this back to Schelling because Schelling was tremendously influential on the uh, American transcendentalists, people like uh, Emerson. And of course, Emerson, you know, where where was Emerson hanging out? He was hanging out in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Who was he talking to? People like uh, uh, Louis Agassiz, who just come from Switzerland to be professor of uh, Biology at Cambridge and this sort of thing, so I very much trace shelling 's influence up through the transcendentalists and on to Harvard and to um, uh, 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 and, and to chicago and in fact, to anticipate what i 'm going to say is I want to argue that ultimately I see Jim Lovelock as very much in a mechanistic framework and so then I've got to explain why is he into Gaia? Well, as I see, Lynn Margulis, who was an undergraduate at uh, at uh, Chicago in the 1950s in their Great Books program, I see Lynn. Uh, you know, I mean, for Lynn, Gaia in some sense is is mother's milk. If you know what I mean, mm-hmm. she grew up with this kind of overall organicist view. So I, I, I don't see Lynn as, you know, as being a problem in, in any sense at all. What's interesting is I think that this organicist view characterizes your teacher, uh, Steve Gould, uh, for, you know, for all he may have been given at the back of his hand. I think that Steve, in many respects, uh, was very empathetic to a holistic view uh, of nature. And um, you know, in a in a way, it, what was it? You know, Emerson said to Thoreau, "You know, what are you doing?" In, well, Henry, why are you in prison? And Thoreau said, "You know, Waldo, why aren't you in prison?" <laughs> and uh, I want to say, you know, uh, uh, Steve, why weren't you in on guard? I mean, I know why he wasn't, but I mean, at a certain level, he ought to have been. I think a hell of a lot more empathetic uh, than he was. I mean, as I say, he's a metaphor man. He's a holist. He ought to have been there. So these are two of the things that. I don't want to run out of time because we have to get to Oberon's Oh, we're, even oh I'm, I'm
1: bringing <laughs> I'm bringing us right there right as soon as you're done Okay, so right. Let's, let's move there then Let, Let's get to him So this is for um, listeners who are Um, just to let them know where we are in the book. So we've just uh, looked at in the book, a chapter on mechanism, a chapter on organicism, and then there's this chapter on what you call hylozoism. This chapter focuses on the ideas of those who accepted that the earth was living, was some sort of living being or living creature, was was alive in some way. And it turns to look at popular science, pseudoscience, and religion, which are interestingly related to each other in this part of the book, even while they're distinct kinds of things. And so that relationship itself is really interesting. Now, here's where we get to um, the emerging importance in the story of people like Rudolf Steiner and his idea of anthroposophy. We get to Rachel Carson and her work in Silent Spring. You talk about Aldo Leopold and ecological philosophers. So there's a lot of really interesting kinds of movements and people associated with those movements in this part Of the book, Um, one of those people. um, So let's just get right to him. And one of the movements that you talk about is this Oberon Zell Ravenheart that we talked about at the very beginning, and his involvement, what you call with what you call paganism. So I wonder if you can talk a little bit about him, and especially because Uh um, paganism or the idea of uh, of a pagan planet constitutes the subtitle of the book itself so could you talk a little bit about him and and his idea of paganism in the context of what's happening in this chapter and also in the context of what's happening at this part of the story
0: yes well now the thing is in this chapter i'm i'm basically trying to look at the general public and mike you know ultimately i want to know why it was that general public was so keen on Gaia, and i don't think that 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 problem is so difficult. I mean, basically, I want to say American transcendentalism not only went into the science at Harvard, but it went into the general public, but more so through Thoreau, I think, than Emerson. As I say, you know, American kids, my kids at high school read, you know, Thoreau. I mean, this is part of uh, the mother's milk for Americans, and of course, Thoreau is, you know, deeply committed to the idea of 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 organicism, of the earth as an organism that we owe. You know that we we shouldn't just destroy it for our own ends and this sort of thing and I'm able to trace this through people like John Muir the uh, founder of the Sierra Club and then in the 20th century Aldo Leopold that this whole organicist or halozoist the idea of the earth as an organism is right there and then through the deep ecologists and the ecofeminists and on as I say to this group I just love the pagans very interesting you know in a way, the Gaia hypothesis can be very tricky for regular Christians, particularly for evangelicals, because they want to say the or, the only value comes from God and that the earth only has value in as much as it is related to and seen a creation of God. Whereas, of course, the Gaia hypothesis and uh, the Gaia thinking wants to say, no, the earth has value in itself. And we don't need to bother. I mean, it's not a question. We don't need to bother with God, but God, you know, God is not part of this. It's, it's. That's what I mean by a pagan planet. And what I want to pick up on here is, I think the pagans are the best manifestation of this of people who say, no, we don't want to. Get into Judeo-Christian gods or even Eastern gods, because a lot of them, you know, you know, take up Eastern stuff of one sort or another. But we don't want to get into that. We want to talk about the earth itself as mother earth that which we should worship that which we should care and of course this is paganism and this chap as I say started life as Tim Zell but has morphed into Oberon Zell Ravenheart I, I liken him to St. Paul because I say you know if you're going to found a religion you've not only got to have the theology but you've got to have the organizing abilities. So by God he had the organizing abilities. The first thing he did was get the IRS to declare it a religion so he got tax Status. I mean, he really is quite quite a lad in that respect, and uh, so and he really did get the uh, the Gaia idea uh, separately. But of course, then when he started reading Lovelock, you know, he got into correspondence and that sort of thing. And of course, today, you know, he's a very enthusiastic um, supporter. So basically, I want to argue that the the whole idea the earth as an organism is in respects, very much an American tradition. It's it's not a universal one because, as I say, a lot of evangelicals feel very uncomfortable with it. But, you know, there's an awful lot of people out there, not just young people. I'll bet you 90% of people who are in the Sierra Club You know, at some gut feeling, some gut sense, think that the earth is our mother and it really is living in some sort of way. And I mean, as I say, I'm not sure I agree with this, but I feel very empathetic to it. Now, let me lay on top of this, as it were, my second uh, theme. As I grew up in England, and my folks were Quakers. Then my mother died. My father married a German woman whose family are deeply into this. um, What shall I call him? This German clairvoyant or whatever he is, Rudolf Steiner. He's the founder of the Waldorf schools, which are incredibly popular all over North America. And Steiner, who you know believed a lot of very strange things, like that there are two Jesuses and that sort of thing. But he was very deeply committed to the idea of the Earth as an organism, and he started a kind of organic gardening in the 1920s, known as a biodynamic gardening. Well. I discovered that Rachel Carson's had a network of people in, in the 1950s, late 1950s, a network of people feeding her information clippings and that sort of thing. And probably the key person was a woman called Marjorie Spock, who in fact was the younger sister of Benjamin Spock, the um, the pediatrician. And Marjorie Spock was feeding Rachel Carson a huge amount of stuff. Marjorie Spock was a, an absolutely flat-out Steiner fanatic. They, they call themselves anthroposophists, and she'd been an anthroposophist since the 20s and gone to Germany or Switzerland, Dornach, to study with Steiner, and so she was doing biodynamic gardening, and one of the leaders, or well, the leader in America... Of the biodynamic uh, thing, I I think he must have been German, Uh, uh, Ehrenfeld Pfeiffer, had in fact in 1958, at the beginning of 1958, published this 30-page pamphlet absolutely hammering DDT and going on about the dangers it was. They gave it to Rachel Carson. She used it right the way through Silent Spring mentioned it once in the preface that she now we know why because she was going to be hammered by the um, by the government and by the uh, by the uh, chemical companies and that sort of thing so she very deliberately didn't mention any of this, but it's all there that Rudolf Steiner had a huge impact on the American environmentalist movement. So this was my first discovery. i got the second one coming up with William Golding and I'm sure you're going to ask me about that.
1: Well, we can let readers or let, let potential readers wait for that if you want to keep that a secret. We, we can we can let, them, <laughs> let them stew and buy the book and see what happened well, to William Golding. Well, that's the truth of that, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so as we move into this uh, concluding few chapters of the book, we move from these really interesting, deep treatments of ways of thinking about the world that kind of lay the foundation for what's going to come. And we move back to the context of Lovelock and Margulis and people who they're directly engaging with in uh, chapters that are devoted to re- revisiting this idea of Gaia and seeing what happens later on at the end of the story. So, one of the things that comes up in this part of the, this last. Part of the story that's really important and really interesting, and you mentioned it early on as well, is the nature of Lovelock's approach and training in a fascination with machines, with machine building, with tinkering, with model making. And you mentioned that this is actually an important part of the story and an important part of his way of not just thinking about the Gaia hypothesis, but also um, de- devising. Kinds of evidence to try to buttress his argument. And so you talk about this really fascinating Daisy World computer model and, and among other things. Can you talk a little bit about as we now come back to um, some of the protagonists of the story? Let's go back to Lovelock. What, why is this background in and tendency to think in terms of tinkering and models and machine building so important to understanding what eventually happens with him and how does his idea or how do his ideas change by the end of the story
0: what's interesting about Lovelock is that by the um he He comes up with this idea of Gaia on his own, I think, in the mid sixties then he goes back to england he 's been working in in California he goes back to England and he wants isolation because he wants to be able to work on his models and, and these sort of things. I mean this is the way the man makes his money, and he doesn 't want you know to be distracted all the time. so he goes and lives in this small village in Wiltshire, I think, and who 's the other main inhabitant, as it were? Well-known inhabitant of this village, but none other than William Golding, the novelist, who's also gone to the the village so that he can get away from the distractions and write his novels. Well, so the only people who, whom they meet are each other, you know, three or four times a, a week down in the pub. And, you know, Lovelock's open about this. They would spend, you know three or four times a week, they would be gossiping and, you know, having a few beers uh, in the pub, as one does in England. I mean, and uh, it's clear that Lovelock is very influenced by Golding. Now, Golding is fascinating because we all know, if you read any of Golding's novels, you know the extent to which you, the spiritual side of things is is right there. I mean, the whole thing about Lord of the uh, Lord of the Flies is all about original sin. These boys go to this island and, you know, things go downhill from there. It's all about the Augustinian notion of original sin. Golding as a young man had been an incredible enthusiast for Rudolf Steiner of all people. And although he gave up the sort of, you know, the the nuttier aspects, remained sympathetic to the end of his life. And so here here comes Jim Lovelock all about Gaia. (laughs) He's talking to one of the few people in England who's as it were, what should we say, pre-adapted to this idea. (laughs) And so it's clear that he's – that Jim's getting an awful lot from Lovelock. And, of course, Lovelock's getting it back. And, in fact, in Lovelock's uh, Nobel uh, Prize-winning lecture in Sweden, he mentions God. Now, I asked Jim about this. I asked Lovelock. And, of course, he – you know, uh, as you might expect, he says, no, 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 no. (laughs) Well, you know, tell that to the Marines. Apart from anything else, the Lovelocks had a handicapped child. And for eight years, they had this handicapped child in a Steiner school that they thought – very highly, off. So you know, Jim knew all about Jim knew all about the Steiner philosophy and these things. As I say, I don't think he bought into any of the you know the highfaluting stuff about angels and Jesuses and that sort of thing. But the whole notion of a holistic world, which is... <laughs> fundamental to anthroposophy was right there so he was you know he was drenched in it you know all these years so why am i not surprised that jim lovelock you know is a guy enthusiast you know because of his background
1: so as we come to um, the kind of the closing of the story, or, or as we approach the closing of this closing the story, that's what happens with Lovelock. But there's also Margulis. And one of the really interesting things that happens in this last part of the book is that you're setting out an understanding of Lovelock in terms of his... Kind of affili- not affiliation with, but his sympathy toward and resonance with a kind of mechanistic approach. In contrast, Margulis emerges as more aligned with the organicists, right, and the holists. And we, we talked about the distinction a little bit earlier on. So what happens um, with Margulis? How does well, her approach change, and what do I need to understand about her at this last part?
0: Well, that, uh, uh, again, as I say, this is an interesting question, because the, what's so fascinating is that Lovelock and Margulis work together really quite Ultimately for four or five years, and then basically they go their different ways, and they always remain friends, they always remain incredibly supportive. But by and large, uh, Gaia is no longer Lynn's baby, as it were. And she even says, You know, I'm not even sure if the metaphor of the, uh, the world as an organism is, is a good idea. You know, now for a moment, I wondered whether, you know, they'd had a little bit of hanky panky, and you know, split. Well, you see, the thing is, Lovelock keeps going on about how dissatisfying his first marriage was, but he. He shows us in his autobiography, and Lynn told me I, I, I asked about this. She said, no, no, there was nothing sexual between us. The thing is, as Jim said this. She's a biologist. Uh, he's an organic chemist. He wants to do models. He wants to do mathematics. <laughs> that isn't what Lynn wanted to do. And uh, Jim said, you know, I can't work you know, collaboratively with somebody who's not going to do these sorts of things. And so, of course, what Jim does is his own students and these are the people I interviewed, who are prepared to do the kind of work that he does. Lynn, meanwhile, is off on her own thing, doing, you know, symbiosis and uh, all of these sorts of things. And in fact, by the time she died, she was very much out of favor in the scientific community, because she'd got all of these uh, symbiotic ideas that everybody thought was total nonsense, but never stopped her for a moment. I mean, she was she was she was a wonderful person like that i mean you know she may be dead wrong but by god you know lynn you know had she she got the guts of her convictions and uh, that's that's what i mean by empathy you know i didn't agree with her at all but oh god i loved her
1: (laughs) (laughs) that's great thank you um so much and i think just for um for listeners who are with us In the course of your discussion of her work in this last part of the book, you go into it, and I won't ask you to to talk too much about this, but um, you go into... Her interaction with or her engagement with one of the another thread that runs through the book, which is the importance of thinking about different levels of selection, um, which is something that's really important really throughout the story. You also talk about her thinking that Gaia was in conflict with Darwinism. And ultimately, we see her, as you mentioned, at the end of the story in a quite different place from um, where she began. So it's a
0: right. Right. Yeah, well, that's interesting, because as I say, Jim, I think, who, I, I don't think Jim was ever a biologist, but when it, these things about the way natural selection works were explained to Jim, he soaked it right up and came right back and said, let me see if I can make my ideas work this way. As far as Lynn was concerned, you know, she just gave them the finger and said, you know, <laughs> you know," she said, <laughs> you know, if if neo-Darwinism thinks that, then so much the worse for neo-Darwinism. So, you know, it was one of the fascinating things in the story is the fact that these are, in many respects, two very different people with very different philosophies in, in, in many ways. I mean, I I mean, no, I mean, of course Steve would never, you know, he could never have bought the later the, the ideas of the later Lynn no, no more could anybody else. But at a certain level, I think Steve Gould's philosophy was much closer to that of Lynn Marg- Margulis. Than it ever would have been to Jim Lovelock.
1: Well, thank you so much, Michael. And b- before we come to. Oh, sorry. Did we've
0: got one final thing we've got to say, Carla. Oh,
1: well, we'll say a few things finally, but you can <laughs> jump in now. I, I was right, keep well, you for Right, of least course, a few
0: the, the punchline is then um, I've explained, I think, why it was the general public like Gaia. As I say, I think this is an American tradition, which goes back to the transcendentalists. But why did the scientific community hate Gaia so much? Uh, well, you're, I want to-
1: you're anticipating what my next is. Oh, okay, exactly. you, asking, so you ask it and I'll answer no. it. How's so, that? So, <laughs> Michael, so I've got this very surprising question for you. Yeah. Why, <laughs> why did the professional scientific community turn so violently against the Gaia <laughs> idea?
0: God, you Harvard people are all so <laughs> bloody predictable, aren't you? <laughs> you know? It's from Harvard. You can say exactly what you're going to say next. Is I'm number one and you're not, and then uh, uh, okay. And listen, you can tell I've got one or two colleagues down here who went, went to a university not too far from you know uh, downtown Boston, uh, and I don't mean MIT. Um, no, uh, no. I mean, why was the scientific community so against it? Mm. And the answer I, I want to argue is the following: is I want to say that scientists turn nasty when they're feeling threatened, when they're insecure. And this is when people start talking pseudoscience. My favorite example actually is Florida State. When I came just over 10 years ago, uh, there was big talk about founding a medical school here. Well, a lot of people, including me, thought it was a lousy idea because medical schools, apart from anything else, you know, absorb all the funds on campus. And Anyhow, they went ahead and founded one, and we were right. They did absorb all the funds on campus. But at the same time, obviously, the medical school was very insecure because here they were, a new school, not very much loved. And then one of the influential state legislators... <laughs> uh, who was a chiropractor, got, I don't know, $25 million or something from the legislature to found a, a sort of a school of chiropractic within our medical school, you know, a sort of faculty of chiropractic. Our doctors, our medics went absolutely, and the only word I could use is apeshit, they just went bananas at this idea. Uh, they were terrified. A pseudoscience, crank science, nonsense, and we know why. It wasn't that they disliked chiropractors. I mean, you know, there are lots of chiropractors in Tallahassee, and the medics get on perfectly well with them. But if they were seen to embrace a pseudo, you know, a pseudo science like that, everybody would look down on. It. But I mean, I, I laugh. I say, if Harvard wanted to start a department of chiropractic, I bet they could get away with it. But Florida State just can't. And so what I want to say is that terms like pseudoscience tend to get flung around when scientists, it's not just that it is a pseudoscience, but it's when scientists are themselves insecure. Well, by the 70s, and we, you, you mentioned groups, you know, the levels of selection debate, the 70s Evolutionary biologists were tearing themselves apart. Your chum, chum, your teacher Stephen Jay Gould, with his theory of punctuated equilibrium, was upsetting conventional paleontologists, and so they were shouting at each other. The sociobiologists were yelling at each other. You know, there was Ed Wilson on the one hand saying, both at Harvard, uh, saying, you know, I think that humans are, you know, controlled by their genes, and Dick Lewontin, same department, saying, no, they're not. They then you've got the, the, the taxonomists, the cladists fighting. I mean everybody was fighting and so they were really pretty, you know, they were re- they weren't happy campers and so when Jim Lovelock turns up and says, you know, naively, oh the Earth's an organism and I can show it and, they, you know, in a way oh, I won't say it was with re- relief, but in a way they, 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 they turned on him you know, because they themselves were so insecure and you know, they, they, they savaged him and the fascinating thing is by the, the the late 1990s, when evolutionary biology had calmed right down and everybody was feeling a lot happy with each other, and you know, you know, even people were even speaking to Steve Gould and that sort of thing, uh, they, they admitted. And uh, there's a lovely quote I've got by John Maynard Smith, an eminent evolutionist, who says to Lovelock, he says, "You know, Jim, the trouble is, we were fighting so much about levels of selection and all of these sorts of things, and then you came along, and you know, he said, Jim." It 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 was bad timing. It was bad timing. And and Lovelock says, you know... I think he probably was. I think it probably was. And so what I want to say is, you know, I think I can explain it. But it, it, in a way, it, God forbid that I'm giving a sociological explanation. I'm a philosopher. But you know, we, we, we look down on historians, but what, how we regard sociologists, is you know. <laughs> but anyhow, the thing is, uh, I'm giving a sociological, or psychological, sociological explanation and saying, I think a lot of this hostility you know, was it was came from personal insecurity. Mm-hmm. Now that's a, a wonderfully satisfying end to anything to say, <laughs> Richard <laughs> Richard Dawkins. You know, the reason why he's, he's so unpleasant is because he's insecure. <laughs> but you know, that that that's the kind of conclusion I like to have. <laughs>
1: Well, Michael, thank you so much for spending the time to talk with us today. This has been great. This Not only was it great fun talking with you, but the book itself is just a wonderful book. And it's there's so much in the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about. It's full of stories.
0: Well, really buy the book. Exactly. Buy the book. <laughs> I know. If you're in America, it's, it's only 19 bucks on Amazon. And that post paid. <laughs>
1: well, before, uh, before we sign off, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about? about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Not really. I mean, gosh, we've talked about it for an hour or more. And it's, I mean, one of the nice things, it's not that long a book. And I hate footnotes, so there's no footnotes, folks. There's lots of references, but there's no footnotes. And there are a couple of... And I think I must be the first philosopher ever to use the word motherfucker in the introduction to a book. And I'm very proud of
1: that. <laughs> Hopefully not the last. <laughs> so michael my final question to you before um before i let you go now that the book is out you've already talked about um some other really exciting projects that you've been working on that have come out already um very recently what's next for you what project or projects are inspiring you right now?
0: well what i really like to do is it not a follow-up, as it were, not a sequel. Uh, But I really want to look at global warming. Now, of course, everybody looks at global warming, but I want to look at some of the what I call the apocalyptic themes in global warming, because it seems to me that both sides are into you know, very American Armageddon doomsday sort of themes, you know, mil- millennial themes and I, I want to link this to a lot of American thought, you know, oh my God, we've sinned, we've sinned, we must all move to North Dakota, oh no, God let's think of something evil, we must all move to Saskatchewan and live in, <laughs> live, live in yurts and, and eat nothing but raw vegetables oh my God, we've sinned, if we do this, maybe God will forgive us, you know <laughs> and I, 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 I've I, got a feeling that there's that there's another wonderful story to be mined there. So ask me again in two or three years' time, and we'll see where I'm at then. (laughs) I
1: will do. I will do. I'll look forward to talking with you about that book as well. So good luck, (laughs) and thank you so much for talking with me today about the book, and
0: congratulations. My, My pleasure, Carla.
1: You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.